welcome to another edition of the 1% Better Podcast with your host, Rob O'Donoghue. We're good to go. Do you need an introduction, sir? You're, you're an old hat at this, so you're just good to go. <laughs> like you, you should introduce yourself and just take it on. <laughs> okay, well, I think everyone, I've met everyone here, so lovely to see you all again. Uh, my name's Sarah Healy, and this evening I'm going to be providing a summary of of a brilliant book that I just recently read called The Winning Mindset, What Sport Can Teach Us About Great Leadership. And it's by Professor Damien Hughes. And it's about how we can create a winning mindset, both in ourselves and also uh, within others that we might be leading or coaching. So we know that the margins in elite sport are really narrow and the difference between success and failure in sport often comes down to mindset. And coaches and leaders can leverage these five very common sense principles that are covered in this book to create that winning mindset. So the five steps, and yes, the acronym STEPS is what's used in the book, is uh, what uh, what Damien says really separates best coaches and teams from the rest. So um, the five steps are simplicity, keeping your uh, your message simple, thinking, providing easy tripwires to trigger thinking, emotions, playing on your audience's emotion, practical, be practical in how you deliver your message, and then finally stories. Harness the power of stories to best communicate your message. So many of the principles that are covered in this book definitely do have that common sense ring to them. Uh, But he says common sense is not always so common. And I love how he started by acknowledging this, uh, because as an avid reader, I I will admit, like when I started reading this book, I was thinking, "Mm, I kind of know some of this. This is this is really basic. This is this is simple. However, he argues that there has never been a strong or powerful argument to make something more complicated, whether it's in sport or business. And things should be common sense. And just because we might know something or something is simple, there's really a challenge there for all of us, certainly for me, is whether we're applying what we claim to know. So for the next 20 minutes, I'm going to walk through these five steps in the book that will hopefully enable us to leverage this common sense approach in our lives and the work that we do with others to ultimately create that winning mindset. So the first step is simplicity. And there's a science in why our brains love simplicity. Simplicity. We need to understand that whenever our prehistoric ancestors faced a difficult situation, for example, a predator, um, those who came up with the correct solution to that challenge most quickly, be it fight, flight or freeze, would have been most likely to survive and then to pass on their genes to future generations. So simple ideas have more impact than complicated ideas because our brain have a preference, a hardwired preference for simplicity over complexity. And today we definitely need simplicity more than ever. He refers to the book, The Paradox of Choice, that maybe one of us should do in one of our upcoming book clubs, because I keep seeing it in my reading. Um, But there's such a current abundance of information. Uh, We spend three quarters of our waking lives receiving information and we have so much choice. uh, We've become overloaded and choice is no longer liberating us, but it's debilitating us. So for a winning mindset, we need to find the core of our message. And it means stripping an idea down to its most critical essence. To get to the core, we need to weed out the fluffy elements. And he says that that's actually the easy part. The hard part is weeding out ideas that may be really important, 
but just aren't the most important idea. And he says, you can't have five North Stars. You can't have five most important goals. We've got to create that simplicity. Well, like the point simplicity itself, I had to cut out around four chapters, 10 stories and 15 studies um, that he gives in this book to try and condense it into a few key messages. So there's three stories I'm going to tell on this point, um, just in keeping with the theme of simplicity. So first, he tells a story of Marcello Lippi, who's an Italian football coach, and he was leading the Italy team um, to World Cup they were playing against France and they'd gotten the team to a penalty shootout. And just before the penalty shootout, one of the five players who was going to be taking a penalty described the moment before having to take that penalty as just being just incredibly stressful. His head was all over the place. Um, he was trying to figure out if he should aim for the top right-hand corner or should he go for the, the middle or all, all the technicalities of soccer that I'm not quite familiar with. Um but he actually admitted to his coach that he didn't know what to do. So the coach then was trying to figure out, right, what am I going to say to him and the four other players before they take their penalties? So what he actually did was before each uh, player took their penalty, he stood before them and he said, qual è la tua chiara intenzione? So sorry, my Italian's pretty awful. But um, what that means is, what is your clear intention and that was the question he asked each of his players what is your clear intention and each of the players immediately had a response it was I'm going to go for the top right hand corner I'm going to go for the left whatever it was each player because there was a simple question asked had a simple response and each of the five players uh, converted their penalty and they won the world cup and Lippi, uh, the coach, he summarizes why this is so important. And he says, quote, when we ask ourselves questions in real simple terms, we often receive a simple answer too. So to summarize, asking ourselves or others simple questions is one of the first ways we can create simplicity in our messaging. So the second story that impl uh, illustrates simplicity uh, is a study that was done on John Wooden. So he's one of the best basketball coaches of all time. He's definitely a hero of mine. And his coaching methods were analyzed by two researchers, uh, Gallimore and Tharp. And they're actually um, fans uh, as well as for, for, former athletes. And they thought they knew what, what to expect when they, when they were going to observe Wooden. As a top basketball coach, they assumed there'd be lots of talks around a blackboard. There'd be inspiring speeches. Um, there'd be maybe lots of praise, lots of punishment for people who were slacking off. However, once they saw him in action, none of that was actually happening. Um, in fact, he rarely spoke longer than 20 seconds. What he was doing was he was giving 75% of his messages was just pure instruction. So short instruction pieces of feedback. And he used to give a three-part instruction where he modeled the right way to do something, the wrong way, and then the right way again. And what they, they concluded from observing him was that what made him a great coach wasn't these pep talks, wasn't the praise, wasn't all these things that they assumed, but his skill resided in the simplicity of the messages that he fired at his, his players. He gave simple, instructive messages. So to summarize here, this story is illustrating to keep our messages simple, it's about those short, instructive messages to keep players focused on those small ways they can improve. 
And the final story to share on this point around in simplicity uh, that he suggests is we should condense our messages to succinct headlines, the length of a tweet or a t-shirt slogan. So Alex Ferguson summarizes, so that's Man United coach, summarized the culture he had shaped in Man U as an unwillingness to accept defeat. And he had the phrase, we never get bet. We occasionally run out of time, but we never get bet. And he referred to Bill Walsh, NFL coach, who had the capturing of the culture of the score takes care of itself. So that was the essence of his culture. And then in the All Blacks, it was let's leave the jersey in a better place. So they're all really powerful and succinct messages that are the length of the tweet. And Alex Ferguson was once asked, if the average coach says 100 words to his players, how many words should a great coach say? And he says 10 words or fewer if possible. Really interesting. And Roy Keane, who actually uh, played uh, for Alex um, Ferguson, he described Ferguson's ability to be succinct as his greatest strength. He said, I was never once confused by one of his team talks. I must have heard 500 of them. Never once in all my years did I think, I don't know where he's going with this. I always understood where he was coming from. So to summarize this third point around keeping messages simple, it's around keeping it short, succinct, the size of a tweet or the length um, of a slogan. So that's and our goal should be to strip down an environment to its core. Leaders, coaches, you and me, we must be masters of exclusion. We can't have five most important messages. We need to condense it to one. We have to relentlessly prioritize. And we can do that through communicating ideas, through asking simple questions that derive simple answers in others. Um, we can provide simple instructive messages like Wooden did. And then like Alex Ferguson, we can provide compelling, clear and succinct messages. So the second step then is thinking. And it is estimated that we have to make up to 10,000 trivial decisions every day. 227 of those are just about food. And 95% of our behavior is habitual, which means that our brain is obviously operating on autopilot most of the day. So he says that great coaches anticipate this and they remove distractions and they use the concept of tripwires, which involves breaking people out of autopilot mode to get them thinking. And that's what this point is all about. So how do we get people thinking? Well, to do this, it does require planning. Great uh, coaches will set up tripwires in their activities, moments that create knowledge gaps and therefore force people to think about the answer. So when we have a gap in our knowledge, it actually causes physical pain. So some of the studies were, were showing that not having um, this knowledge would cause physical pain. And he referred to a study where people were given a quiz and would learn the correct answer to the questions, whether they got them right or wrong. And beforehand, he asked them, would they like to know the answers to the quiz or would they like chocolate? And most people said beforehand they'd like chocolate. But interestingly, after they had being asked the questions, okay, and they'd answered the questions in this quiz, they were asked again, would you like chocolate or the answers? And more people said they wanted the answers to a quiz that they didn't care about a few minutes ago. So it just shows you that um, when, when someone creates that gap in knowledge, makes us care about wanting to know an answer, wanting to know knowledge, we're far more likely to, to want it than chocolate, which is kind of crazy to me. Um, so... 
commercial radio stations, and he talks a lot about this, they know that people switch off during adverts. And what they use to combat that switching off is to do something called throwing it forward. And what that means is they'll say, coming up after the break, the funniest joke in the world. No one had cared about this funny joke. And now people will actually listen to the ads to wait till the radio program returns to hear this funny joke. And I'm ashamed to admit that that does actually work on me. So what they what what he talks about in the book is that research estimates that um, allowing people to control have control over how they meet targets can improve performance by up to 16%. Um, so he refers to the concept of guided discovery, a technique honed by one of the world's leading coaches, uh, Jose Mourinho, uh, who's coached some of the best players in the world, best footballers in the world. And he says they wouldn't have followed um, what he was saying to do because they have so much skill, so much expertise. So he had to create an environment where he would plant clues but they themselves would be the ones coming up with answers. And he also referred to a psychological principle that I'd never heard of uh, called principle of forced choice. And this is when he was working with the French rugby team, he asked the team at the start uh, when they were uh, coming into the team to complete an application form. And the application form would say, you know, ask questions around how you like to receive feedback, how you like to be communicated to. And then there was some questions around how you show up um, under pressure, etc. So the purpose of this was players, uh, first of all, coaches were able to adapt their approach to others, but it actually got players thinking about who they want to be and how they wanted to show up. And he tells a story of how this became really relevant when one of the players got um pretty uh, angry over a situation that occurred and they took out the application form and showed it to him and it had said I am a very laid-back guy and um, I respond really well when things don't work and here he was acting up so once he saw that he had written that in the application form he he kind of backed off and changed his behavior so I just thought that was a really really interesting concept and then the last concept under this, and I'm sure you've heard of this, is the concept of commander's intent. And this is one that's been used in the military. Um, Army invests a lot of energy in planning. However, um, one drawback to that is when you face the enemy, um, plans go out the window. So um, U.S. Army, Colin Powell, invented a concept called commander's intense, intent, which is where, yes, they plan for battle. Yes, they plan for situations of war. But when things actually happen and the enemy attack or whatever, plans go out the window. But the, every soldier knows they have to think themselves, but every soldier knows what the commander's intent is. And what it does is facilitates that thinking while keeping everyone aware of what that the top goal is. So to summarize that second step, thinking is where we provide tripwires by removing distractions from others so that they can think, by leveraging curiosity in others, by creating that knowledge in and knowledge gaps, which make us want to know something, um, through throwing it forward to entice interest in to white, we might not have cared about in the past, but now we suddenly care about. Um, and then also to create environments where individuals are asked to think through solutions themselves, like guided discovery, forced choice, and then commander's intent. So the third step then is emotions. So what he says is eye contact, really important. Um, and also 
a good way to know if you're good at this. And I thought that actually quizzes some of his coaches who are coaching teams and he asks them, so what is your player's partner name? What are their children name? When, where, where do they go on, on holiday last? And what he finds is maybe coaches who thought they had a great personal relationship with their team actually didn't know a lot of basic information about the team. So it's a good way of actually challenging yourself. Do you actually know really key information for people that you're connecting with? So he also talks about, you know, it's important to understand how our brain works in terms of emotion. Um, And when coaches or or, uh, educators are teaching points, there's a part of our brain that will always go, do I need to know this in order to survive? And if we say no, which often is what we say, then we're not really listening and we're not going to take it on board. But if we say yes, then we've tapped into real openness to learn something. So he uses, he talks about the concept um, with him, what's in it for me. And he says, we really need to focus in on that emotional piece around connecting what's in it for that individual person that we're trying to, to teach and support. Um, he talks about emotions um, being generated in a really meaningful way through rituals at the start of a season can be very powerful. And he shares story from Phil Jackson, another legendary basketball coach. And he talked about how at the start of each season, he would perform a ritual uh, that he borrowed from Vince Lombardi, who's an American football coach. Anyway, he would make players form a row at the, at the side of the basketball court and he would ask them to commit to being coached by him that season. And he would say, God has ordained me to coach you and I embrace the role I've been given. If you wish to accept the game, I embrace. I, I, will you embrace and follow my coaching as a sign of commitment to step across the line? And each of the players would step across the line. And that includes some of the best basketballers of all time, Michael Jordan, Shaquille O'Neal and Kobe Bryant. And they always did it. So it was like a fun way of starting the season, but it was creating a ritual, uh, tapping into people's emotions around what they were trying to achieve as a team, but also that they were being being willing to be coached um, and they were committing to letting him coach them. So I thought that was really interesting as well. Um, he, he also shares how under pressure, a lot of this can go out the window. So um, he talks about the All Blacks, New Zealand's All Blacks, um, and how they were having real difficulty con- uh, performing under pressure. And he talked about the concept of redhead, bluehead. So redhead is that negative state where you're heated, overwhelmed and tense. Um, your emotional engine is smoking. Your perceptions are slow and the game feels too fast. Um, and this is all under pressure. But bluehead, on the other hand, is the precise opposite, where you're cool, controlled, you're looking at, for patterns, and you're retaining your awareness and your decision making. So they mastered through this simple concept of redhead, bluehead, they managed to master performance under pressure, and they won the subsequent uh, two World Cups following that. And then the last point that he talks about um, under emotions is that he really recommends we plan in advance how we're going to handle what he called the oh shit moments. So they're the moments where everything goes 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 haywire. And he said the first step in this is actually to understand our natural personality. And he talks about personality profiling here or performance profiles, which was really interesting. And he talked about how under stress and pressure, uh, we're going to default to that. 
And he said some people that might be aggressive behavior, other people that might be that pull back, say nothing, distance behavior. But he said we need to prepared for how we actually respond in those moments under real pressure. And he actually encourages coaches and leaders to prepare in advance their victory and also their defeat speeches, which sounds really counterintuitive. I'd never heard of a coach preparing in advance for how to have that um, media interview around their loss in advance. But he says it's actually a really good way to be prepared because under pressure, under distress, when you've just lost a big game, you could say anything and you don't want to say anything. So he really recommends people do that. So to summarize that third step, establishing that emotional connection with our team, people we're working with is the most important thing. We need to focus in on always what's in it for them as the brain needs to know why they need to know something. So our brains need to know why we need to know something. We can tap into emotion by creating those really powerful rituals like Phil Jackson did, where people are committing to something important. Uh, We can understand how our emotions are affected under pressure, like the redhead, bluehead. And finally, we can plan in advance what we're going to do when those oh shit moments occur so that we're prepared and ready. So step four, the P is practical. And this is actually one of my favorite steps. So he said, we really need to be practical on how we deliver our message. Uh, imparting knowledge without jargon or overcomplication is one of the key skills any expert should acquire um, if you're going to pass on your expertise to anyone. Um, he says, Albert Einstein, he quotes Albert Einstein, if you can't explain what you're doing to a six-year-old, you probably don't understand it yourself. I love that quote. And he says, practical language is what helps people understand concepts. So he says, keep it really short, keep it chunky and make it vivid. And he said, the more vivid and the more imagery you use in your language, the easier it is for someone else to remember and therefore do. So he gives an example of, say you're giving a a presentation, instead of saying, make sure you stand up straight to yourself, say, stand like a tree, because you're picturing a tree um, standing tall. Um, So I thought that was really interesting. He says, always keep your self-talk positive. Don't focus on what you want to avoid, but what you want to accomplish. So if you've got a meeting with an important uh, client, say, I'm going to take my time. I'm going to listen to my client instead of don't don't rush and don't forget your main points. So it's similar, but one has a positive slant and that's far more effective. Due to the way our brains work and the nature of memory, He says that we learn best by hooking new knowledge onto things we already have connections to. So he says, if if you're talking about an acre, which is 4,840 square yards, um, a person's going to look blankly at you and go, I have no idea what that size is. So he says, by saying that's the size of a football pitch, people are immediately able to picture that size and they're able to comprehend what, what you mean. So that hooking information to what they already know is really critical in making your messages practical. Again, he says every player is different and being practical is about tailoring your approach to that person. So again, he talks about using behavioral profiles so that you can guide how you communicate and give feedback depending on who the individual does, who, sorry, who the individual is. And 
the he talks about um, language and its importance and that we can change the way people view things by using language that that describes the practical in a more enticeable way. So he said, you know, huge part of high performance is practice and practice is dull at times for people. So he talks about how music teachers, instead of using the word practice, they use the word play. And he talks, he actually uses our own uh, Jim McGuinness, uh, GA football coach for Donegal um, a few years ago. And he talked about how he used the word, uh, instead of practice, he used the word team rehearsals to describe training for, for big games. And he says that language, as small as it is, it changes how people perceive it, makes it very practical and real, but actually has that positive spin. So to summarize that point about practical, it's about imparting knowledge without jargon or overcomplication. We need to keep our messages short, vivid and visual if possible. We need to hook it to new uh, knowledge onto things that someone already has that connection to. We need to tailor our approach based on who we're, we're communicating to through profiles, for example. And then we need to leverage language in that really uh, tangible, understandable, but positive way to get across these practical messages. And then the fifth step is stories. So this is around how we harness the power of stories to best communicate our messages. So how do we get people to act on our ideas? Well, we tell stories. And he quotes our Rudyard Kipling, who said, if history was taught in the form of stories, it would never be forgotten. So stories are such an effective teaching tool. Um, we know that they show how um, they show the difference between casual relationships that people haven't recognized before, and they highlight unexpected resourceful ways in which people have solved problems. So stories power is twofold. It provides stimulation. So knowledge about how to act and then inspiration, motivation to act. And we should be trying to focus both those two things into our stories. Um, He talks about as coaches and leaders um, that if we're, working with people who maybe haven't experienced success before, we shouldn't um, think that telling stories about this isn't powerful. It's maybe not as powerful as having experience of winning or success, but it's the next best best thing. So actually using stories in that way can really be powerful in helping someone move to that next level. He also then suggests that we look at our own lives um, from a storytelling perspective. So we all have plenty of stories to tell which can point us to where we're heading. And he said, the problem is we don't actually tell them as stories, but there's value in actually structuring things that are going on in our lives as stories, which I found that interesting point. Um, So he said, there's four elements to stories that we need to take to create those compelling stories. So the first area is that we need a protagonist. So that's the hero of the story. The second is there's always a journey that the hero must go on. Uh, They need to be faced with a challenging situation that forces them to take action or to make a choice. Then the third area is that narrative. This is where we figure out what will happen, how we'll do it. And then finally, there's that outcome, the resolution. So he uses and refers to um, Pixar and how absolutely phenomenal they are at telling stories. And they use a six sentence storytelling structure that you might be familiar with. And That six-sentence structure is used for every single Pixar movie. They condense their story into those six sentences. 
which just shows you how long we can tell stories, but actually most good stories can be condensed into a few, a few sentences. So they are, the first sentence is once upon a time. That's how the story starts. Every day, which is kind of the context of where the hero currently is. One day is the journey that they go on or what changed. Then it's because of that, what happens? Because of that, there's a second because of that. And then there is an until finally, which is that resolution. So I was actually thinking I might use a, the one of my favorite movies and use that structure to tell you that movie and you can guess maybe what the movie is. So once upon a time, there was a widowed fish called Marlin who had a son called Nemo. Every day, Marlin would warn Nemo of the dangers of swimming away from the reef into the deep wide ocean. Because of that, he was captured by a fisherman and taken to live in a fish tank in Sydney. Because of that, Marlin set out on an adventure to rescue Nemo, enlisting the help of a whole lot of sea creatures along the way. Until finally, Marlin and Nemo were reunited and learned that love is based on trust. Anyone know what the movie is? <laughs> Finding Nemo. Finding Nemo. Exactly. Um, but look, the thing is that that those six sentences um, can be used for any story, and what it's going to do is help us con- condense, which is all about being succinct and getting rid of all that's not necessary. But that six sentence is something that we can all use to actually craft our stories uh, and make stories more powerful. So, just to summarize that final point. Um, how we harness the power of stories to best communicate our messages is really important. Stories have that twofold power. So it provides stimulation, knowledge about how to act and inspiration, motivation to act. Stories should have that protagonist hero, uh, that journey, that challenge, and then what that outcome ultimately is. And we can leverage that Pixar six sentence structure to structure all of our stories in that way. So to summarize, that's an overview of the five steps. And yes, although common sense, we need to continue to remind ourselves that common sense is not always so common. Um, Great leaders and coaches do strive to see things from a full range of perspectives. And they have a willingness to look as widely as possible for ideas that can help them deliver their messages most effectively. So by leveraging those five steps of simplicity, thinking, emotions, practical, being practical and stories that will enable us um, to just leverage those learnings within the book to, to be better coaches and better leaders. So that's it. Well done, Sarah. Great, great, uh, great readout again. Fascinating stuff, like lots of really good takeaways there. Just the, you mentioned the paradox of choice, the book, I actually interviewed the author on on my podcast this time last year. Yeah, Charles uh, Charles Schwartz, um, isn't it Charles Schwartz? Uh, I have his book over there. So it was released about this time last year. It's an amazing one of my favorite books of all time. And um, yeah, I was lucky to get to chat with him, and we talked about his other books, but we talked about that as well. So you should check mm-hmm. that one out. But it's it's a Absolutely. brilliant book as well. So it'd be a good one to to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a great. That's great, Rob. I didn't know that. Definitely check that out. What was he refers to that a lot in 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 this book? It's referred to quite a lot. Just about because the message of simplicity and maybe practical, there's a bit of overlap there. But that's probably my biggest takeaway was just how we so need we so need that to be 
you know, and because of so much, there's so much choice out there because of that message in that book. Yeah, his kind of main thing was this concept of good enough. Actually, do I have it on? I have I have a poster up there, of it, but basically we strive for perfection. There's no such thing. You're always putting yourself under extra pressure. So just be happy with good enough and lower your expectations and, and you'll generally be, be totally, you know, happier in the outcomes. Just a question around... <clears throat> Was there anything specific relating to trust during the book that a lot of those activities probably would have a natural consequence of building trust in whatever relationships you have? But do do you call out anything specific around trust? Does anything ring a bell? I think under emotions, he would have referred to trust. Um, But I can't recall anything specific. I really did need to cut out a lot of content. (laughs) I, I can't even describe how much stories and studies are cut um so i might have missed it rob mm. and and it definitely is woven in throughout yeah. um because he's talking but he didn't go into detail on psychological safety which is probably one of the things that we've talked a lot about a lot in um book club in other books that we've read mm. don't recall him going into into a lot of detail on it okay no worries cool thanks sarah it was really really good um there is actually even just so much to talk about and you've cut it down for us. So um, <laughs> thank you for that. Just something that I was struck by um, and it's slightly a tiny bit off topic, but I am learning a new coaching tool at the moment based on clean language. And for those of us who are coaches, um, clean language is, you know, where you use their words back. And the question he poses in his book was, what is your clear intention? And the question that we are using in this tool that I'm learning at the moment is, what would you like to have happen? And I'm just wondering, what do people think about that? Like, are they the same question or are they different? Because your question is very precise in like, what is your clear intention? But the coaching question I'm asking is, and what would you like to have happen? Both looking for an outcome from chaos, maybe, uh, you know, jumbled up thoughts. How do you, how do you get down to that? Um, the, clear first one, the first one seems to have some agency, whereas the second one is very passive. Yeah. There's control. I think there's more control in, in what would you, um, the, the question they're asked, right. And what mm. would you like happen seems to, to be just it could happen through something you do or something another person does that's that would be my sense as well yeah there's a there's a famous um sports coach dave allred and he uses that that power of language piece that sarah was talking about and rather than people beating themselves up over mistakes he always says the outcome didn't match your intention so it's not, not mm. a so, so like, like a nice way of sort of reframing it i think isn't intention as well a lot to do with visualization, which is what sports people do. So yeah, I've seen, I, I'm not a big follower of sports, but I know I've seen Sebastian Vettel sitting in the car before the race, before the Formula One race, eyes closed, like I'm talking seconds before the lights change. And he said it himself. He's admitted like that's what he does. He's visualizing the, the track, he's visualizing his lap, a perfect lap. And he's kind of trying to force in some muscle memory, you know, before before he does it for real. 
and that's kind of intention and visualization have a lot in common. Absolutely. It's a fascinating thing on YouTube if you get a chance to watch it. It's uh, visualization. If you type in visualization and uh, the bobsleigh luge piece, that mm. actually, that's how they practice is that they memorize the track. And because they're going at such high speed that like a very subtle, gentle tilt of their shoulder or tilt mm. of their knee, and you can watch them actually just sitting on the sled and just... Oh, Twitching. Oh, <laughs> But then actually you see what the track is and you can see that, that direct correlation between what they're doing mm. and how they're managing the track. It's fascinating stuff. <laughs> there was or that funny vi- movie from years ago, Cool Runnings. Do you remember oh, yeah, that? Yeah, yeah. We just watched it recently with the kids again. And I mean, that's exactly what they did. You know, they had to, I don't think they even practiced in the cold until they actually got to the yeah, no Olympics. <laughs> very famous study, I think, at uh, the University of Chicago on basketball that they had two groups practicing free throws and they gave themselves a 30-day challenge. One group was to practice for 30 minutes every day using the basketball and one group was to do visualization for 30 days. And there was only a, a 1% improvement on the actual um, group that actually practically um, used the basketballs for their practice. So like, it's, it's powerful stuff. So, yeah, yeah. I think um, Ronaldo, uh, he was mentioning another book that I read recently too, and he he literally visualizes exactly where the ball is going to go in the net. Um, so, yeah, very effective. Yeah. But that's after the 10,000 hours of <laughs> of practice. Like, you have Absolutely. to. Yeah, the muscle memory must be there, and then the visualization kind of gets it over the last bit. Yeah. I think that's been a bit debunked, though, recently, hasn't it? The ten thousand hours, like there's a lot. Oh, of, no, I'm just using that as a that's a, a throwaway line. Yeah, you have to. You have. You can't, you can't just visualize it and make it, and it'll happen. Yeah. Like no, I'm not yeah. going to sit in a Formula One car and visualize my way around the track. <laughs> yeah, de- deliberate practice and deliberate visualizing. <laughs> there, are, I um, that sounds like a really great book, and I've actually read his other book, The Barcelona Way. Mm. Um. I love the idea of stories and actually I was coaching somebody just this morning and um, he's um, a young graduate start really high technical ability, really great academic ability. But actually one of the things that we were trying to do was to help him communicate his story, like what he was really all about. Um, so you gave me loads of good pointers and I love the Pixar structure as well. And I'm going to actually bring that to him too. Um because I, I suppose like in a competitive job market, trying to make yourself stand out, even in a CV, to try to communicate your your story, what you're all about, um, is a challenge sometimes. So um, I think that that's really good. I don't know, has anybody else used it in coaching or trying to help a client kind of, I suppose, communicate your USP or really, isn't it? You know, what's, what's different about you? It's probably used in a different sense, but there's a, a nice model called the hero's journey, which I think this is adapted from. It's by Joseph Campbell, and it's it's basically a twelve step, a twelve step program. But it's it's basically like he's a mythologist, and he studied all the sort of the scripts, tales, you know, books, and he found that there was this narrative that went through where the hero goes through. Uh, he's you know living his normal life. He's faced a crisis. He needs to go into the cave, slay the dragon, and come out, come out 
change but obviously the dragon is a metaphor for that real sort of life change that everybody needs to go through at some point and again it's just it's it's a nice narrative to help people make sense of what's what might be going on for them and what step they might be on that hero's journey yeah brilliant star wars was based on it yeah. Uh, nearly nearly uh, i think something like 80 percent of all movies are are kind of based oh. on the hero's journey yeah 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 it's fascinating like once once you once you kind of can link that uh methodology you start seeing it everywhere yeah it's really good and so, he, de- he definitely talked just about how we should use it on ourselves so we should like use our lives and where we want to go in our futures through stories. And I just thought that was really interesting. There wasn't loads on that point, but um, we think in stories anyway. So there's something very empowering about being on a certain stage of a story that makes it maybe the challenge we're facing is less daunting because, okay, we're just in this phase now. We're just in front of the dragon, but we will slay the dragon or whatever it is, you know, but um, I just thought that was really interesting. It's to kind of step away from being in it, isn't it? And look at it from outside a little bit. Exactly. Yeah, cool. I think the old shit planning is fantastic. (laughs) (laughs) And it's it's funny because when when people start talking about intentions and visualization and all that kind of stuff, there's almost a positive slant to it. And I think that can really trip people up. Oh, this, this isn't what I was expecting to manifest but like the, the old shit planning is just absolutely vital and certainly in the world of sport and, and in business like to be able to just to have that safety net there and yeah. step into that prudent mindset of what could go wrong and are we prepared for it it's, it's yeah. invaluable absolutely look at our political situation over here and a certain president didn't have his um his defeat speech prepared you know <laughs> <laughs> he won. He still he still believes. Oh it. right, sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's funny if if you walk around here, all his signs are still up. It's it, it has not been. Yeah. Well, he's not going away. Not over. Yeah, I was just thinking. And even when Biden is president, he won't go. It won't be over. No. I just wonder, has he ever lost playing golf? Because he's always out on the golf course, and that would be horrible playing with him. I, I would imagine. Yes. Have you read the book? Um, the the commander. Cheat. It was written by a golf journalist, actually, a guy, a well-known uh, guy from the golf, some big golf magazine, and uh, he 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 just writes about Trump's golfing game uh, uh, over the years, uh, all the cheating stories. Like he apparently his his golf game is notorious. There was one that just struck me as being like you imagine the stuff he's doing now, you know, this kind of bubble he lives in. He was due to play at his own course. At a, uh, at a competition and he found out that this really good golfer was was also playing that day so he went to a different course and played there and then rang up and said how did so-and-so get on and they said oh he won because he had this score and he said well i was better so put me down as the winner he wasn't even on the same golf course he wasn't even playing the same place it really ties into the tagline of what sport can teach us about life yeah like, yeah, yeah. There's a big cross over there. And the thing is, what this guy was getting at was that, you know, if he's cheating in golf, he's going to cheat in marriage, he's going to cheat in business, he's going to cheat in politics. But he said golf is so different because golfers, I, I don't play golf, but I know this, 
golfers are so honorable. Mm. It's everything is up to you to own up to your mistakes and and take your own score. And uh, he said, like, Trump just walks roughshod over all that. <laughs> the writing was on the wall. Yeah, yeah. But um, a friend of mine read it, and I must read it, actually. I heard an interview, a good, long podcast interview with the author. It was fascinating. Mm. Um, it just kind of boils it down. Yes. Sarah, why... You you said you do a lot of reading, and I know you do from this book club. Like, what what is it about this book that attracted you to it so much? Um, well, I'm actually doing a master's at the moment in performance psychology, so um, a lot of my assignments are on athletes and how they're performing. So, uh, and then I'm trying to bring that into the work that I do in Facebook. So I just uh, felt okay, this will help me connect the two. Um, uh. But actually, the real thing that stood out for me that challenged me the most was simplicity. And when I say the hardest bit, like I had about 20 other pages, the hardest bit about even preparing for the book club was just cutting it down to the points that I did. And I still had, how long did I talk? I was 20 minutes talking, you know, mm-hmm. probably everyone here is going to remember one thing, you know, so even still, I didn't really achieve what he was saying. And I just thought that that that's the message that sports coaches and leaders have to do is they have to just have one goal because performance, there's just so much failure and success in sport that's very obvious. And I think sometimes in the business world, it's a little bit less obvious, Mm. success or failing. And I was just really challenged by that simplicity piece. I thought that was such a great, such a great um, angle to have. And then that, that quote about what is your real intention in asking it as a question. So that it's not even, this is me as the coach telling the team what they should be. It's asking as a question and they're the ones owning it. I loved that as a concept. So yeah, that's what I got out of it. Um, why I chose it is just because I'm <laughs> studying. I'm in this world at the moment. <laughs> it's so true though. I did some training on delivering virtual training this year. And like, it was amazed. The trainer said, you know, just, just have one topic, one item to get across and you talk about whatever you do, all your activities around that. And then the second, then you do another topic. But whereas I'd be trying to cram so much in, I have to give value for money. I have to, you know, but people don't take it in. So yeah, you're so right. It's interesting. Mm. Yeah. The the first sentence you said, and that's the one I think that's had the most power for me is that there is no powerful argument to make it really hard for yourself. But what, like what you said, Arifa, about, you know, wanting to give value for money, this kind of innate sense of, is it imposter syndrome underneath it or something is do I am I if I if, if you said after 10 minutes hey guys that's all I'm going to share tonight because that that's all I really think you need will you would you feel that what's preventing you from doing that you know what I mean there's that underlying you know I don't know if it's an is it an Irish thing or something I don't know but that that prevents us from not writing 500 words but writing a thousand because it just feels we're mm. we're cutting cutting a ourselves short and others it's just it's 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 a weird thing isn't it it's a fascinating thing if i had more time i'd have written a shorter letter yeah (laughs) churchill right yeah uh pascal i think originally but okay well i've been doing some leadership interview training recently and trying to get them to sum down that 30 year vp senior management whatever career into a sense and I'm saying 
you got to remember these people, like they have 10 seconds and then they're thinking about what's for dinner. So, you know, you got to make it simple. And they are waffling on you. And they're like, well, that's only about two minutes. And I said, all right, I'm going to time you. And I said, you've actually spoken. I did it today now with a site leader. He says, you spoke for six minutes without drawing breath. I was like, yeah, right, you know. Like it is, and our attention span has got so much shorter as well. Um, I think personally, with everything, so it's it's interesting to get that simple message across in all walks of life. Mm-hmm. And be okay with that silence. Then afterwards, leaving that pause, just the lovely introvert Zoe. For we love the silence. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but actually, I tend to feel it. I can get nervous and I'll talk and chatter. So I need to. I have to practice that too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah that's very good and uh, yeah just one other thing that struck me there reminded me because it was so recent the storytelling I was at an event last week an Engineers Ireland event and we were talking about people trying to achieve um, professional uh, certification chartership and so on and part of it is writing your career story and how it does you might only do it once, you know, every couple of years for whatever reason, or maybe once in your life. But these guys, I did it myself, and you know, it's 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 the rite of passage. You have to write your whole career down, and then present it in an hour or less than an hour uh, with questions. And uh, it does focus the mind. You know, you you have to write it down, and then writing it down is great because it highlights. You can see the gaps because you can write your story, and then you can just plot it against. Uh, these competences you need and you can see gaps and you can drive your career. Cause I said to people on the, at the event, I said, even if you're not ready, or even if you think you're not ready, write it down, then look at it and see the gaps and then go get the help you need to fill those gaps, you know, cause uh, it might take a few weeks, you know, <clears throat> every night for a couple of weeks to get this down on paper, but it really helps. John, at the start of this book club, you said to me you you weren't that big into self development or self help. It sounds like you've become a bit of a master there already. So, convert <laughs> <laughs> them, Rob. We've converted them. Converted them by osmosis. Yeah. <laughs> Very good. Sure. Look, are, are, you, are we good to to leave it there? So, uh, Sarah, thanks again for doing the second second coming. Um, we'll have to. We'll have to. Uh, I suppose you you broke the rules, not broke the rules. You set new rules there of by people uh, people doing that. So it's it's up for grabs. Um, I'm yeah, sure yeah. we'll see what happens over the next week or so. If anyone wants to put their name forward, for sure. And uh, what date are we now? Twenty fourth, first. So we have the we have the eighth in two weeks. Is it? Yeah. And the twenty second, I think it is, isn't it? Pre Christmas one. Yeah, 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 yeah. Cool party. That's it. <laughs> The Zoom party, the Christmas party. Sounds good. Uh, Very good. Christmas party with a difference this year, anyway. Yeah. We can all read a line from the night before Christmas. It'll be be special. (laughs) Good stuff. Right, so guys, look, thanks again, Sarah. I'll put this out on the pod in a a couple of days, so feel free to share it around then because it's loaded with recommendations, right? So it's a really good one. Magic. Well done, Sarah. All right. Thanks, everyone. Sarah, great job. Bye. Bye. Good night. Hey folks, thanks so much for listening to the show. If you enjoyed it, 
could you please consider helping me extend the reach of the podcast that little bit further? You can do that in a number of ways. The number one way is to subscribe on your app of choice. This helps me with the chart ranking, leading to more folks stumbling across the podcast and checking it out. You could also repost it on your social media channels. Any of them would be great. And maybe even tell a friend in person or over the phone. Pick up the phone, give them a call and tell them about the 1% Better podcast. Tell them about this episode or one that you've heard in the past. Annie will do. I would really appreciate it. In the last year, we set up a 1% Better Slack community, which you can join for free. And interact with me and other members of the community and improve through holding each other accountable and sharing monthly challenges. It's a lot of fun. Check it out. I'm into season four of this incredible journey and the more of these interviews and solo shows that I research, record and share, the better I believe that they get and more loaded with actionable takeaways that you can learn from. I know I've learned so much from it so far, and it's always really, really fulfilling and rewarding when I hear from you on what you took from it. So do reach out, rob at robofthegreen.ie. And of everybody that listens, 90% listen and enjoy, but only around 10% actually take action, write down takeaways and put them into practice. I am convinced that if we can move that number a bit higher, the listeners will not only make steps forward towards their goals, but they will be more fulfilled and happy and better. Change doesn't happen overnight. It is hard, but it's all about taking the first step, whatever that is for you. You can absolutely do this. Make a plan, be deliberate, take action. Don't overreach. Start with those small incremental improvements and over time you will see great progress. It's all in the pursuit of betterness. So again, thank you so much for listening. Good luck and stay safe.